0: Good morning Good morning. I, I love that song too. It could have been a theme song for my life for a number of years. And I want to tell you a bit about that story this morning, but first of all, I'll tell you how glad I am to be here. Uh, I came in from Denver yesterday. I live in Denver now, and uh, the greatest thing about living in Denver is I no longer have to live in Chicago. <laughs> that's, that's the greatest part. <laughs> Anybody from Chicago? Yeah, I, I, uh, Chicago's a great city. I, I mean, the problem with Chicago is... Uh, When you live there, you feel obligated to be a fan of the Chicago Cubs. And that's just death. It's just death. In fact, you know what Jesus said to the Chicago Cubs? Don't do anything till I get back. (laughs) God bless them. They can't play baseball, but they're faithful. So that's that's good. That's a good thing. So I I, I really uh, enjoy the opportunity to travel around and talk to people about um, Christianity. Why does it make sense? Does it stand up to scrutiny? Is it rational? Is there evidence that points to the truth of the Christian faith and you know I love doing that with one person or a bunch of people but um, I got to confess something there are times when I get into a spiritual conversation about this stuff and it does not go well I don't know if you ever had that experience but I had I had the most embarrassing to happen a few years ago I was down south at a conference with my buddy Mark Middleburg and uh, the next day we're going to fly home and we had to get something to eat we saw one of these Cracker Barrel restaurants you heard of these things? I've never been to one, and Mark said, well, you we should try it out. I said, all right, we'll try it out. So we noticed they have rocking chairs on the front porch where people can sit and people watch. So, you know, in order for us to get to the front door of this place, we had to walk in front of two people in rocking chairs. First one was a young woman about 18 years old, dark hair, dark eyes, quite attractive, young man about the same age sitting next door. So we got to walk in front of them to get to the door. That's not a big deal, right? So we're walking along, and just as I step in front of this young woman, I hear her say, what's a deist? And I thought, I just wrote a book about that. So I turned on my heel. I said, young lady, a deist is someone who believes that God created the universe, and then he walked away. I said, a deist is someone who believes that God sort of wound up the universe like a giant clock, and is just letting it tick down. I said, a deist is someone who believes that God is distant and detached from us and disinterested in us. But I said, that's not what the evidence shows. I began to give her the evidence that shows God's involvement in the cosmos and God's involvement with humankind. Started to give her all this facts, all this data, all this evidence. Started talking about the evidence of cosmology and physics and biochemistry and genetics. And I'm just laying all this stuff on her. She's just looking at me and her eyes are getting bigger and bigger. And I'm on a roll now. You can't stop me. Talking about Jesus entering into human history. The incarnation his miracles, his death. I started to give her the evidence that Jesus rose from the dead. And her eyes are getting bigger. And finally, I turned to my friend and said, could you believe this? I happened to walk in front of her. She said, what's a dios?" My friend said, Lee. She said, buenos dias. <laughs> I really wish that were a joke. <laughs> that is about what happened. She, w- she was freaking out. I will tell you that. She was freaking it, it, But you know what the good news was? The ice was already broken. How do you not get into a spiritual conversation at that point? And turned out she was there with her boyfriend for the state track meet, and they brought us back to the hotel room where the coach was and all the athletes, and we got to talk about Jesus for about 45 minutes. So it turned out all right, but man, it was embarrassing. (laughs) So I thought, I got this nice invitation to be with you this morning. I thought, okay, what, what can I talk about? Uh, Concerning the evidence for the Christian faith, and do it in a way that doesn't embarrass myself. That's kind of another value I'm trying to uphold. Um, But I thought, you know, I think the best thing for me to do uh, is just to tell you a story. It's a true story. It's my story, and it's a story that begins in atheism, because I decided at a rather young age, as a young man, that God does not exist. That God cannot exist. That that You know, uh, God didn't create people, but people created God. Why? Because they're afraid of death. And so they made up this idea of God and and heaven and an afterlife to make themselves feel better about death. That's what I thought. I mean, I just thought just the mere concept of an all-loving and and all-knowing and all-powerful creator of the universe, that's absurd. It wasn't even worth my time to check out. Now, granted, I tend to be a skeptical person. My, my background's in journalism and law, so you can imagine you put those two things together. We're kind of a jerk, to, <laughs> skeptic, <laughs> that, that you get. Uh, and I was the legal editor of the Chicago Tribune. We used to uh, pride ourselves on our skepticism. We didn't want to accept anybody's word at face value. You know, we always tried to get at least two sources to confirm a fact before we printed the newspaper. So we actually had a sign in our newsroom, no kidding, that said, if your mother says she loves you, check it out. How do you know? Maybe she's lying. Got any proof? Got any, anything to back that up? That's the kind of skepticism. And that's good. That's good. You want journalists to be skeptical, don't you? That's their job. That's a good thing. The problem with me was that my skepticism bubbled over into cynicism, and it just reinforced my atheism. Now, because I had no belief in God, I, I really lacked a moral framework for my life. I'm not saying all atheists are like this. I'm just saying that, that my conclusion was the most rational way for me to live my life as an atheist, if there is no God, if there is no accountability, if there is no heaven, if there is no hell, if there is no ultimate judgment, then the most logical way to live my life is as a hedonist. Just pursue pleasure. And that's what I did. I, 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 my life revolved around bringing pleasure into my life, and so I lived a very immoral and drunken and profane and narcissistic and self-absorbed and really, honestly, self-destructive kind of a life. I mean, people saw me winning all these awards for investigative reporting, but what they didn't see was me literally drunk in an alley in the snow on Saturday night. had a lot of anger inside of me a lot of rage inside of me and if you ask me why why the rage why the anger i couldn't have told you but looking back i know what it was i was always after the perfect high you know I, I, i was always after you know the ultimate experience of pleasure and guess what everything let me down nothing lived up to the hype it's a lot of rage. I remember once my wife and I got in an argument. Our little daughter was there, and I, I just I had so much rage. I blew up, and I remember I reared back, and boom! I kicked a hole right through our living room wall. And my daughter's crying, and my wife's crying, and it's like, hey, that was my life. In fact, I'm going to tell you the ugliest thing about me, which is when my little daughter Allison was just a toddler if she was alone in the living room playing with some blocks and toys or whatever, as she would hear me come home from work through the front door, her natural reaction was just to gather her toys and go in her room and shut the door. Is he going to be drunk again? Is he going to be you know, yelling and screaming and kicking holes and things? You know what? At least it's nice and quiet in here. Friends, that is the ugliest truth about me. My wife was uh, agnostic. She didn't know what to think about God and so one day we moved into a condominium building outside Chicago and the woman downstairs Linda was a Christian and she became best friends with my wife Leslie and it was very natural for Linda to talk to Leslie about God. God was such an important part of Linda's life. They'd have long conversations. They 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 talked for hours about this stuff. They'd, they Leslie went to church with her, and for many months, kind of asked a lot of questions, checked it out. Finally, one day, Leslie came up to me. She said, "Lee, I made a big decision." I said, "What?" She said, "I've decided to become a follower of Jesus." And I thought, "Oh no, you know, for an atheist, this is the worst possible news." <laughs> You can, I thought she was going to end up on Skid Row serving the poor all the time or whatever. I mean, I didn't sign up for this. This wasn't part of the original deal. So I, first word that went through my mind, divorce. I'm out. But I stuck around, and and, and what amazed me was in, in the following months, I began to see positive changes in her character and, and in her values and the way she really related to me and the kids. And it was winsome and it was attractive. And so finally, one Sunday morning, I'm sleeping off a hangover. She's getting ready to go to church. And she looks at me. And she says, hey, Lee, why don't you come to church with me today? And I thought, you know what? I'm going to go. Get her out of this cult that she's involved in, you know. <laughs> so I go with her to a church. It was meeting in a movie theater about a mile from my house. And the pastor gets up to preach. And he was a young guy. I don't even think he was shaven yet. Um, <laughs> his name was Bill Hevels and he gave a talk called Basic Christianity. And I remember sitting there, and it was like he was just knocking down, one after the other, my misconceptions about the Christian faith. And so I remember walking out that day saying two things. First of all, I was still an atheist. He didn't convince me that day that God exists. But number two, I realized, if this stuff is true, this has huge implications for my life. You know, (laughs) duh, right? So I decided, you know what, I'm gonna take my legal training, I'm gonna take my journalism training, And I'm going to investigate, is there any credibility to Christianity or any other world religion? And I launched on what turned out to be a nearly two-year investigation of the evidence. Now, as I began the investigation, one thing became clear very quickly, and that's this. if, If you want to get to the bottom line, is Christianity true, and therefore every other contrary faith system in the world false? If you want to get to that bottom line, it really just involves answering one question. You know what that question is? Did Jesus or did he not return from the dead? That's the ballgame. Why? Why? Because Jesus, in a variety of different ways, directly and indirectly, made transcendent and messianic and divine claims about himself. He claimed to be the Son of God. At one point, he got up before a group and he said, I and the Father are one. And the word one in Greek there is not masculine, it's neuter, which means Jesus was not saying, I and the Father are the same person. He was saying, I and the Father are the same thing. We're one in, a- in essence, we're one in nature. And how did the audience understand what he was saying? They picked up stones to kill him because they said, you, a mere man, are claiming to be God. So Jesus made these divine claims about himself. But so what? I could claim to be the son of God. Murph could claim to be the son of God. Anybody could claim to be the son of God. But if Jesus claimed to be the son of God, died, and then three days later rose from the dead, that's pretty good evidence he's telling the truth, right? Apostle Paul recognizes this, that the resurrection is the linchpin of the Christian faith. He says in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 17, "And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins." In other words, this is the ball game. So here's what I want to do. For the next couple of minutes, I just want to hit the highlights for you of some of the evidence I encountered during my investigation and in the years since, because now it's become a lifelong uh, journey. Um, the evidence that convinced me that Jesus did rise from the dead and thus authenticate his claim to being the Son of God. Now, as I did this investigation, one thing you have to understand is I I did it as a skeptic. I I did not initially accept the New Testament as being anything special. I didn't consider it to be inerrant, inspired, the Word of God, anything I do now, I didn't then. But I had to accept the New Testament for what it undeniably is which is a set of ancient historical writings. And I knew just as you can investigate other ancient historical writings, whether it's Josephus or Tacitus or Suetonius, you can take those same investigative techniques and you can apply them to the documents in the New Testament to try to determine, are they telling me the truth? So in other words, I didn't just open the New Testament and says, oh, Jesus rose from the dead, end of story. I want to dig beneath that. How do I know it really happened? So I want to summarize the evidence for you using four words that begin with the letter E. The first E stands for the word execution. You've got to have a death, right, before you can have an, a, a resurrection. And so what is the evidence that Jesus is executed? Well, one thing I found out very quickly is there is no controversy among scholars in the field, and I'm not just talking about evangelical Christian scholars. I'm talking about the wide range of scholarship. There is no dispute about the fact that Jesus was executed under Pontius Pilate. It is just not historically in dispute. Why? Because when we study ancient history, what we learn is we're lucky if we have one or two sources to confirm a fact. And yet, for the execution of Jesus Christ, we not only have multiple early first century accounts of this in the documents that make up the New Testament, we've got five ancient sources outside the Bible confirming and corroborating the execution of Jesus. We have Josephus, a first century Jewish historian who worked for the Romans. Tacitus, another early historian. Lucian, Meribar Serapian. Even the Jewish Talmud admits that Jesus is executed. This is such a well-established historical fact, you would get laughed out of a major academic institution if you came in and somehow claimed, no, 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 Jesus wasn't executed. In fact, you could go to the most um, critical, skeptical, atheist New Testament scholar like Gerd Ludemann of Vanderbilt University. And this is what he will tell you based on the evidence. Quote, Jesus' death as a consequence of crucifixion is indisputable. It's indisputable. Now, I don't know how much you've studied ancient history, but there are very few things in ancient history that a skeptical, atheist, critical historian, like a Gerd Ludeman will say, is historically indisputable. One of them is the death of Jesus. The first E is for execution. Jesus was dead. The second E, it's my favorite, stands for the word early. We have early accounts or early reports that Jesus rose from the dead. In other words, reports that come virtually immediately after the fact. Why is that important? Because I used to think like a lot of skeptics that, okay, I got to give you the fact that Jesus was executed. Uh, There was no record anywhere of the thousands of people crucified in the first century. There was no record anywhere of anyone having survived a full uh, crucifixion. So I got to give you the fact he was dead, but... Certainly the idea that he rose from the dead is a legend. It's a legend. And we know legend took time to develop in the ancient world. So I figured 100, 150, 200 years after the life of Jesus, legends grow, grew up and stories began to be spun. And people, oh, there was this Jesus. He lived in the first century. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. G- smart guy, great guy. You know, he rose from the dead. No kidding. Oh, yeah, sure. And they kind of made this mythology, this, these, these legends up over time. That's what I thought. But what I discovered, I think, just decimates the claim that the resurrection of Jesus is merely a legend. Follow me on this. I think it's fascinating. We have preserved for us a creed, a statement of conviction of the earliest church. In other words, right in the first century, the first Christians would rally around this uh, creed based on facts that they knew to be true. Now, this creed contains the essence of Christianity. It says that Jesus died. Why? For our sins. He was buried. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. And then it mentions the specific names of groups and individuals that he appeared to, including 500 people at once. And the creed says, by the way, they're they're still around. If you have any questions, go go track them down. They'll tell you it's true. And it even has the names of um, uh, a skeptic and an opponent of Jesus whose lives were changed 180 degrees because they encountered the resurrected Jesus. Now, this creed, remember we said it takes a long time for legend to develop in the ancient world. This creed is um, written down by the Apostle Paul in a letter he wrote to the Corinthian church about 25 years after the death of Jesus. Jesus was executed in 30 or 33 AD. 25 or so years later, he writes this letter to the church and says, by the way, you know, I already gave you this creed. So, he writes out. Now, so he already gave it to him. So we know within 25 years, this creed was around. And historically, that's very impressive. When you consider the first two biographies of uh, Alexander the Great by Arian and Plutarch were written 400 years after the fact, and they're generally considered reliable. So 25 years is pretty impressive. But we can go back earlier than that. Because Paul used to be Saul of Tarsus, an enemy of Christians, a, a persecutor of Christians. One to three years after the death of Jesus, Saul of Tarsus is on the road to Damascus. He has this amazing experience with the risen Christ, and he becomes the Apostle Paul. He immediately goes into Damascus. Some scholars say this was the point at which he was probably given this creed. But other scholars say, no, it's probably three years later. Three years later, Paul goes into Jerusalem and he meets for 15 days with two people specifically named in the creed, James and Peter. And the Greek word that Paul uses in Galatians to describe this, this 15-day conclave is the word hysterise, which means this was an investigative inquiry. They weren't just talking about the cubs. They weren't talking about the weather. They were talking about important stuff. How do you know what you know? What did you see? What do you, and, and, and comparing notes and checking each other out. Most scholars will say this was the point at which Paul was probably given the creed. But either way, it means within one to six years after the death of Jesus, this creed is given to Paul, and therefore the beliefs that make up that creed go back even earlier virtually to the cross itself. So the point is, we don't have some huge time gap between the death of Jesus and the later development of the legend that he rose from the dead. We got a newsflash that goes right back to the beginning. In fact, one of the greatest scholars in this area is James D.G. Dunn, and this is what he says. He says, this tradition, this creed, we can be entirely confident, was formulated as a creed, as tradition, within months of Jesus' life. Within months. This is historical gold. When you consider that one of the greatest classical historians who ever lived was A.N. Sherwood White of Oxford, he studied the rate at which legend developed in the ancient world, and he determined that the passage of two generations of time is not even enough for legend to grow up and wipe out a solid core of historical truth. We don't have two generations of time passing here. We got news flash that goes right back to the beginning. Friends, it would be unprecedented in the history of the world for a legend to develop that fast and wipe out a solid core of historical truth. And that's not the only early report we've got. We've got others in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the book of Acts, and the writings of Paul, all of which date back so early that they were circulating during the lifetimes of Jesus' contemporaries who would have been all too happy to point out the errors if they were making this stuff up. Friends, we got an execution. Jesus was dead. We have reports that he rose from the dead that come so immediately after the event, you can't just write them off by saying, "Ah, eh, they're a legend. But that's not all we've got. We've also got a third E, stands for the word empty. We have an empty tomb. The historical uh, evidence tells us that the body of Jesus was buried in a tomb belonging to Joseph of Arimathea. We have good historical independent reasons for believing that's true. It's sealed. Matthew tells us it's guarded by Roman soldiers, and yet it's discovered empty on the first Easter morning. Now we could talk the rest of the day about all the strands of evidence that point powerfully to the fact that the tomb of Jesus really was empty. But I'm just going to give you three quick facts, because uh, to me, this is conclusive. The first is called the Jerusalem factor. The Jerusalem factor. And this has been popularized by a scholar by the name of uh, William Lane Craig, who has two earned PhDs, brilliant scholar. And, And this is the way he summarizes, very simple. Bill Craig points out that the site of Jesus' tomb was known to Christians and non-Christians alike. Therefore, he said, if it were not empty, it would have been impossible for a movement founded on the idea of the resurrection of Jesus to have burst into existence in the very same city where Jesus had been publicly executed just a few weeks before. That's pretty good. That's a Jerusalem factor. That's, That's pretty good. But then secondly, we have the criterion of embarrassment. The criterion of embarrassment, and this is fascinating. When an historian is trying to determine, is this ancient writer telling me the truth about something that took place? One of the tools they use is called the criterion of embarrassment, and here's how it works. If the writer is writing something that is embarrassing to themselves or hurts their own cause, they're probably telling the truth, why? Because if you're going to make something up, if you're just going to invent a story, you'd never include details that were embarrassing to yourself or that hurt your own case. Now, think about this. Who discovered the tomb of Jesus empty? Women. Women discovered the tomb empty. And yet, in first-century Jewish and Roman culture, the testimony of women was not considered to be credible. They weren't considered to be reliable purveyors of information. Women were generally not allowed to testify even in a court of law. And yet, the historical accounts in in, in the New Testament and elsewhere tell us that women discovered the tomb empty. Why would they say that? If they were making up the story of the empty tomb, if they were inventing the story of the empty tomb, there's no way they would have said women discovered the tomb empty. It hurts their case. In fact, Christians were attacked in the second century by opponents who said, oh, you can't trust that empty tomb stuff. That was women that discovered the tomb empty. If they were going to make up the story, they would have said John discovered the tomb empty or Peter discovered the tomb empty, some man discovered the tomb empty. But why did they say women discovered the tomb empty? Historians will tell you applying the criterion of embarrassment is probably because that's what happened and they're just trying to tell the story and let the facts fall where they may. So historians will say, you know, applying the criterion of embarrassment, the empty tomb story is probably true. But then I think the third strand of evidence, to me, is conclusive. And it's called the uh, enemy attestation. In other words, what are the enemies of Jesus saying about the empty tomb? here's the amazing thing. Even the opponents of Jesus, even the enemies of Jesus, implicitly admitted that the tomb of Jesus was empty. How do we know? Because we know from sources inside and outside the New Testament that when the disciples began proclaiming that the tomb of Jesus was empty, what the opponents of Jesus did not say was baloney. <clears throat> you know, go open the tomb yourself, you'll find the body. They didn't say that. What did they say? They said, oh, well, Disciples stole the body. Now think about that. That's a cover story. They're implicitly conceding, yeah, 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 the tomb is empty. But we can explain how it got empty. The disciples stole the body. It's sort of like if you're a teacher and a student comes up to you and says, the dog ate my homework. That student is admitting, I don't have my homework. But I can explain what happened to it. The dog ate it. It's the same thing. They're implicitly conceding the tomb is empty, but they're trying to explain it away, the emptiness, by saying the disciples stole the body. Now, that was a bad cover story then. It's a bad cover story now. Disciples didn't have the motive. They didn't have the means. They didn't have the opportunity. But the point is, everybody was either implicitly or explicitly conceding that the tomb of Jesus was empty. Friends, the question of history has never been, was the tomb empty? The question of history has always revolved around the issue, how did it get empty? Disciples didn't have a motive to steal the body. They wanted Jesus, you know, they had no motive. They didn't have the the, the opportunity. They didn't have the means to do it. They didn't have the motive to do it. So disciples aren't a good suspect for stealing the body. Uh, The religious leaders weren't about to steal the body. They wanted Jesus to stay dead, right? Romans weren't about to steal the body. They wanted Jesus dead. So nobody had a motive or an opportunity or the means to steal the body. I think the best explanation for the tomb of Jesus being empty is that Jesus returned from the dead, especially when we combine it with the fourth word that begins with the letter E, which is the word eyewitnesses. Not only was Jesus' tomb discovered empty, but over a period of time, Jesus appears alive in a dozen different instances to more than 515 individuals, to opponents and skeptics and enemies, as well as to believers to men and to women, to groups and individuals, to uh, you know, indoors and outdoors, daytime, nighttime. People talk with them, they touch them, they ate with them. Remember, remember we said we're lucky in ancient history if we have one or maybe two sources to confirm a fact? Well, get this. For the conviction of the disciples that they encountered the resurrected Jesus, we have no fewer than nine ancient sources inside and outside the New Testament, confirming and corroborating the conviction of the disciples that they encountered the resurrected Jesus. That is an avalanche of historical data. And it so changed the disciples that we have seven ancient sources inside and outside the New Testament confirming that they lived lives of suffering and deprivation as a result of their proclamation that Jesus rose from the dead. But they proclaimed it nonetheless. Friends, nine ancient sources. This this is so much historical data that let's go back to that atheist, skeptical, critical New Testament scholar, Gerd Ludeman of Vanderbilt University. And based on the historical data, this is the concession that Gerd Ludeman publicly made. Quote, he said, it may be taken as historically certain that Peter and the disciples had experiences after Jesus' death in which Jesus appeared to them as the risen Christ. Based on the historical data, that is his statement. Now, this is an atheist speaking. Don't you wonder why he's still an atheist? Do you know why? He found the loophole. There's a loophole that explains all this away. You know what it is? The disciples didn't really encounter the resurrected Jesus. They merely had hallucinations. There you go. That explains it all the way. End of story, right? Well, wait a second. I'm a journalist. I try to check things out. So I went to an expert on the human mind, an expert on hallucinations, a guy with a PhD in psychology who was a professor of psychology for 20 years at a major university, a guy who'd written three dozen books on psychology, who was the president of a national association of psychologists. So this guy was a well-respected expert on the human mind. And I laid out all the evidence. I said, now, Dr. Collins, would you not admit to me these disciples did not encounter the resurrected Jesus? They merely had hallucinations. And he looked at me and he said, Lee, that is not possible. I said, what do you mean it's not possible? He said, Lee, you have to understand something about the nature of hallucinations. He said, your documents tell you that Jesus appeared to groups of people at least three times, right? I said, yeah. He said, your best source, your earliest source, this, this creed that comes immediately after the death of Jesus. Said he appeared to 500 people at once. I said, yeah. He said, Lee, you have to understand something about hallucinations. Hallucinations are individual events that happen in individual minds. They're like dreams. He said, I can't say to you, how do you like that dream I had last night? Doesn't work. Or you can't wake up your spouse in the middle of the night and say, Honey, honey, wake up, wake up. I'm having a great dream about a vacation in Hawaii. Let's both go back to sleep. We'll have the same dream. We'll save all the airfare. We'll save all the hotels. Wouldn't that be great? How many would like to do that? Yeah, I would would love to do it. Why can't we do that? Because dreams happen in individual minds. They don't spread like the common cold. And then Dr. Collins said something I'll never forget. He said, Lee, 500 people having the same hallucination at the same time would be a bigger miracle than the resurrection itself. <laughs> and then he said this, yeah, by the way, if these were hallucinations, then I assume the body is still in the tomb, right? Oops, the tomb's empty. Friends, these were not hallucinations. It wasn't something more subtle like a, a vision that they had because they, they missed Jesus so much, they kind of talked themselves into seeing a vision of him. They weren't primed for a vision. Saul of Tarsus was an enemy of Christians. He wasn't primed for a vision of the risen Christ. Um, James, a half-brother of Jesus, was uh, a skeptic about Jesus during Jesus' lifetime. He wasn't primed for a vision of his brother returning from the dead. And yet, by the way, he died as a leader of the church proclaiming Jesus was the unique son of God who proved it by returning from the dead. Why? Because the creed tells us Jesus appeared to James. This this wasn't a hallucination, it wasn't a a trick, it wasn't a legend, it wasn't mythology, it wasn't um, a vision. These were actual occurrences, actual appearances of the resurrected Jesus that radically transformed those who encountered him. Friends, I spent two years of my life investigating this stuff. And it all came down to a Sunday afternoon. And I went alone in my room and I thought, I gotta reach a verdict. I gotta reach a conclusion about this stuff. So I thought, I know what I'll do. I'll take a yellow legal pad and I'll just write out, I'll just by longhand, I'll just summarize the evidence I encountered, get it all on paper. Then maybe I can reach a verdict. So I did. I took a yellow legal pad and I thought, here we go. And I started writing out all the evidence I encountered over these two years, page after page after page after page after page. After page. And then finally I put my pen down and I said, well, wait a second. In light of the avalanche of evidence that points so powerfully toward the truth of Christianity, I realized it would take more faith to maintain my atheism than to become a Christian. <laughs> I'm just saying. And that's the point where I reached my verdict, which is that based on the historical data, I was convinced that Jesus not only claimed to be the Son of God, he backed it up by returning from the dead. And then I felt a tremendous sense of letdown. Because <laughs> I thought, two years I'm doing this, this is it? Shouldn't something happen here? Shouldn't there be something dramatic? You know? And I I was really, it was anticlimactic. I was kind of bummed out. Kind of sitting there going, well, okay, I guess I'm done. And, and then I remembered a verse that a friend of mine had pointed out to me earlier. So I got a Bible, I looked it up. John 1:12. It says, But as many as received him, To them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believed in his name. And as I looked at that verse, I noticed something. If you take out the key words of that verse, it forms an equation of what it means to become a child of God. Believe plus receive equals become. So I said, okay, now I understand the problem here. I believe based on the evidence that Jesus is who he claimed to be, but that's not enough. I had to receive. Receive what? Receive this free gift of forgiveness and eternal life that Jesus purchased on the cross for me when he died as my substitute to pay for all of my sins. And when I would receive this free gift of his grace, then I would become a child of God. So I got down on my knees next to my bed and I poured out a confession of a lifetime of immorality that would absolutely curl your hair and at that moment i received complete and total forgiveness through jesus christ and i became a child of god and my very first thought i got up off my knees my very first thought was um hey i should probably tell leslie about this you know she might be curious i didn't know i figured she'd <laughs> want to know you know So I I walked out of our bedroom, I walked down the hall, and I looked into the kitchen, and Leslie was standing there behind the kitchen sink. But remember I mentioned my daughter, Allison? She was almost five years old by then. And she was standing in front of Leslie on her tiptoes, stretching out, and for the first time, she was able to touch the faucet. So I I walked down the hall, I looked in the kitchen, Allison said, Daddy, Daddy, look, look, I can touch it, I can reach it. I said, wow, you're really getting big, and she ran off. And i turned to lesson i said honey that's how i feel so i feel like for the last two years of my life i've been reaching out and reaching out i just touched jesus he is alive he is resurrected he is the son of god i just gave him my life and she looked at me and she burst into tears and she threw her arms around my neck and she said you hard-hearted son of a baptist i've been telling you this for two years hello No, I'm kidding. She didn't do that. (laughs) I always wish she had done that, because that would have been hilarious (laughs) if she had done that. That would have been a great story if she had done that, but that's not her. She she did, though, burst into tears, and she threw her arms around my neck, and she said, oh, honey, I almost gave up on you a thousand times. She said, I remember when I was a new Christian, I told some women at church about you. I said, I don't have any hope for my husband. He is a hard-headed, hard-hearted legal editor of the Chicago Tribune. He will never bend his knee to Jesus Christ. But she said this one elderly saint put her arm around her shoulder, kind of pulled her to the side. She said, oh, Leslie, no one is beyond hope. And she gave her a verse from the Old Testament, Ezekiel 36, 26, that says, moreover, I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit within you. I will remove from you your heart of stone, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And unbeknownst to me, my wife took that verse, and this whole two years that I'm on this investigative journey, behind the scenes, she was praying that verse every day for me. And can I tell you what happened? Starting on that Sunday afternoon, now that I was a child of God, and then over time, as I was baptized, as I, as I learned to read the Bible with fresh eyes, as I learned to pray, as I learned to worship, God began to answer her prayers because my values changed and my character changed and my morality changed and my attitudes and my worldview and my philosophy and my relationships and my priorities and my parenting. I mean, you just go down the line. All, all these things began to change over time for the good. And the only way that I can summarize how much God has made a difference in my life is what happened to my little girl. Here was a little kid, five years old. All she knew for the first five years of her life was a dad who was absent or angry, kicking holes in walls, coming home drunk. That was, her, that was her life. That's all she knew. But starting on that Sunday afternoon, you know what she did? She started to watch. She started to listen. She started to observe. Something's going on with dad. Something's changing with dad. Something's going on. And, and she would watch and she would listen. She would observe. And it took about five or six months. And then finally one Sunday morning, she went up first to her Sunday school teacher and then up to Leslie. And you know what she said? I want God to do for me what he's done for daddy. And at age five, my little girl received Jesus as her Lord and Savior. She became a child of God, and and God changed her life. She's now married to a seminary graduate. She teaches at a Christian school. Together, they write children's books about Jesus. She is the mother of two of my four precious grandchildren. And we are the best of friends. And same thing with my son. He saw the difference God was making in his mom and his dad and his sister. He came to faith at a young age. And he went an academic route, got an undergraduate degree in biblical studies. Then he got a master's degree in philosophy of religion. Then he got another master's degree in New Testament. And then after many years of research and study in Europe, he was awarded his PhD in theology from the University of Aberdeen in Scotland. And now you know what he does? He's a pastor at a major university teaching young people about Jesus. And one year ago this month, his wife, Kelly, gave birth to my first grandson. And they named him after his dad. Friends, God healed my family. He changed my son. He changed my daughter. He changed my wife and he changed me. And so that's my story. So what do you do with that? What do you do? Okay. Let, me just, let me just end this way. I'm going to go back to that equation, believe plus receive equals become. And I just want to quickly apply my story to your case. You know, we we'll start with believe. You know, you may be here this morning because somebody invited you to come and we're so glad you came. But honestly, if the truth were known, you do not yet believe. That Jesus is who he claimed to be. You're just not there yet. You got too many obstacles, too many questions, too many doubts. If that's you, if you are here today and you do not yet believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be, what I want to say to you is that's fine. That's perfectly fine. As long as you do what I did and you check it out. Old Testament and New Testament both say if you sincerely seek God, you're going to find him. So do what I did. I mean, you get my books. I'm not asking you to buy them. Go to the library. You can check them out for free. Or my website, leasedrobel.com, totally free. Hundreds of free video clips of scholars explaining why we believe what we believe. But you owe it to yourself to check it out if you don't believe. But I'll end with this. Some of you may believe, but you've never received. Your life has never really changed, has it? Have have your kids seen a transformation in you? Maybe you believe the right stuff, and, and that's great. That's tremendous. But there's never really been a point in time where you have received this free gift of grace and thus, according to John 1.12, become a child of God. Could that be your case? Could that be why God always seems so distant from you? You just, well, I couldn't, live with myself. I came all the way from Denver, and I didn't give you an opportunity to say, yes, I want to I wanna become a child of God. So let's just close our eyes and bow our heads. and You know, it's not a difficult process. I'm not going to ask you to do anything weird. But if you want to take that step and just know for sure that this is the day that you cleared up the ambiguity, that you became a child of God, according to John 1:12, then in your heart, God will hear you, just in your heart say, Lord Jesus, as best I can, I do believe that you are the Son of God and that you proved it by returning from the dead. And I confess to you that I'm a sinner. And I want to turn from that and I want to receive this free gift of forgiveness and eternal life. Help me, Jesus, to live the kind of life that you want me to live. Because from this moment on, I am yours. And now, Father, we know from Luke 15 that a party breaks out in heaven. Anytime a sinner repents and receives forgiveness through your son. So we celebrate today those that took that step. Those that aren't ready yet, those who are still on the journey, we pray for them. We pray that you would open their eyes to their need for a Savior, that you would use this church or books or website or whatever to help them in their spiritual journey, that someday we could celebrate their rebirth as well. And finally, Father, for those of us who've been your children for maybe a long, long time, we thank you that every bit of evidence for the resurrection of Jesus is evidence for our eventual resurrection. Because, because it's true that he is a unique son of God, we can have confidence that we will spend eternity with you. We thank you for that. We thank you for this great church and the way it shines your love and grace, your message of hope and redemption far and wide. We ask for a blessing on everyone here in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, everyone. God bless you all.